It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I am so excited today to have Kathy McDaniel join me. Kathy, where are you joining us from? I'm coming from Gig Harbor, Washington in the Pacific Northwest. I love Gig Harbor. We we used to live in the Seattle. (laughs) We used to live in the Seattle area, so I'm familiar with it. Uh-huh. So I miss I miss seeing the water. I live in um, in Billings, Montana, and there isn't open bodies of water very close to us. So I miss that a lot. I bet that and Mount Rainier. Yes, definitely, definitely. Although we do have some pretty pretty majestic mountains around here. Oh, good. With the parks close and everything. So, oh. Kathy, other than living in Gig Harbor, just um, Tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, uh, My dad was in the Navy and we traveled all over the uh, United States, living at different uh, bases that he was in charge of. And uh, we ended up in Santa Cruz, California when I was in high school. So I got to spend 35 years in Santa Cruz when I thought that was the most beautiful place in the world. But as the university came in and it got more crowded, you know, it lost some of its luster. But I had a property management company that I started there and uh, I loved it. I had it for about 11 years and uh, hired my sister and my daughter to work with me. So it was really fun. But then at about 50, I decided I was tired of working. I'd been working oh, yeah, yeah, since I was like 19 mm-hmm. and now I was 50. And I thought, no, nah, I'm going to take some time off. So I sold my business. And uh, it was probably a good thing because my very best friend, uh, someone whom I'd been engaged to for seven years, but we had amicably split up so he could go to the East Coast and pursue his career because I really didn't want to leave the West Coast. Well, he called up and said that he had leukemia and Mm. that they were going to do uh, some work with him at a research facility in Seattle, wherever that is. I had never been up in that area, had to look it up on a map. That's pretty pathetic. But then um, we moved up there and it was supposed to be a three to five month procedure. And uh, he hung on for eight months and passed away. And after that period of time, I was a emotional, physical and an and mental wreck. And uh, so I was all run down. I caught a flu that was going around that turned into pneumonia, which turned into ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome. It's very much like COVID and SARS and that sort of thing. So um, I found myself in the hospital on a ventilator in a coma for three weeks. My family came out, they told them, and they really didn't think I was going to make it. But I was 53 and uh, I was, it it just came out of nowhere. So um, that's kind of what got me into the hospital. Wow. So um, what kind of leukemia were you guys dealing with? I think it was called LLC. 
He had okay. to have a bone marrow transplant. His okay. brother volunteered to do that. And we thought that you know, he was a perfect match. And we really had high hopes. None of us thought he'd ever leave. He was just uh, a go-getter. You know, he yeah. just didn't let things nail him down. But it was his time to go. Well, we have walked the cancer journey. My daughter is a leukemia survivor, and uh, she was diagnosed when she was two and a half. And she is one of the daughters that we just married off this summer. So congratulations. um, Yeah. God has been good to us and and she's doing, she's doing well and thriving. So, but that is a long, hard journey. And I can see how you get so run down, you know, that, that caretaker fatigue is a real thing, isn't it? Oh yeah, it is. Uh, And at the time when you've got no one else to help, you just do what you got to do. Right. Right. And so was he being treated at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance? Uh, it was uh, called Fred Hutch Research. Fred Hutch, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Research Hospital. They're yeah. excellent. Yeah. I went to uh, Seattle University right up there near all of those all of oh, those hospitals. That's where yeah, I did. I used to walk on the campus down there. Uh, yeah. Get some re- yeah, that was beautiful. Yes, it was a great school. I did my master's out there. So I, I very much, very much love the area and love the school. So this was in um, 1999, then that you had this, um, this traumatic health experience. It was right at the very end. In fact, it was that whole thing with a Y2K bug. Uh, okay. I, the last thing I remember is the ball going down and my dad uh, giving me a thumbs up because they were going to put me in the coma. And I didn't awaken till uh, almost three weeks later. So what was the purpose of putting you in the coma? They don't want you ripping out your ventilator. Okay. You're going to be poked and prodded and, you know, a mess. Uh, they just you're easier to take care of. Interesting. Interesting. So it was called ARDS? Yes. Well, that's, you know, you start off usually with a flu and then you go to pneumonia and then the lungs on ARDS and it's, it's, they fill up with liquid and then the liquid solidify and then you're toast. So at the time they had no, um, way of treating it. It was all hit and miss. And so they put you on this peep, which was uh, blew air into your lungs. And it had to be low enough to where it didn't blow out a hole in your lungs and, and, and high enough so that didn't allow your, your lungs to collapse and stick because that stuff's gluey. And so if it's stuck, you know, your, your lungs are like a deflated balloon. And again, you're toast. So one lung collapsed partially. Um, I've got quite a bit of scarring on that side, uh, but the other one was fine until about a week before I left the hospital when it started to detach. So they had to stick a tube through my breast down into my lung and drain it. It was, it was just, that's, that's how I got the PTS between the, um, distressing near death experience and all the time in the hospital and rehab. My therapist at one point said, I got to put this on your chart. It's um, sorry. And I thought, no, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So um, with this coma, you had a near-death experience, right? Yeah. 
So tell me, tell me about that. What is, tell me what a near death experience is, and then tell me a little bit about your experience. Most people think that you have to be clinically dead, you know, with the, the flat line and all that to have a near death experience, but that's not true. Um, you can have it in a coma when your consciousness uh, gets get kind of loose. And there's other people that have them when they're in a, say they're, they're coming into a car accident and just before they hit, they go out. There's, there's people that, you know, are out for a long time and then come back. Um, you know, they've been drowned and so they've been frozen or cold. So there's all kinds of ways for your soul to go wandering around. And mine was in the coma. And they told me that they were giving me something called white amnesia and that I would have no recollection of anything that happened to me in the coma. It was going to be impossible. My brain could not remember anything. So this comes into play later because here I am 22 years later and I still remember every minute of it. But that's because you experience, I experienced a near-death experience is in your soul, in your consciousness. It's not in your brain, not in your human parts. So that's kind of an explanation there. I found myself in what's sometimes called the void. Uh, some people go to that. Some people just burst into heaven. But sometimes you go to the void, which is completely black. I mean, black, dark, and no sound. And you just kind of wake up in there. And I, I thought maybe I was in a closet. I, I had no idea where I was. Mm. <clears throat> Through this whole experience, I never felt dead. I was always me. I was my soul. And I, I didn't have a mirror or anything, but I never felt any different than I do right this minute. And that's very common. Interesting. So I woke up and this void, and then it started kind of morphing and getting uh, light, but it was reddish and, and kind of foggy and it got warmer. And all of a sudden I'm hearing shrieks and moans in the background. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, this is not good. I was a you know cradle Catholic. I was taught from a very early age that there was heaven and purgatory and hell. Mm -hmm. And I was taught that most people would go to purgatory first and, and get their sins squared away, burned off or whatever. And then you went to heaven. Didn't so, Vatican II do away with purgatory? You know, it's really funny how somebody can just do away with something like purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, saying, yeah, you know, God's going to be a unicorn from now on. I mean, you can't change reality, but yes, uh, no, I don't think they ever did. They, I, the last time I talked to my priest, cause I had, uh, that I used to have, I sent him the book and I says, all right, just tell me what you think. And he came back with, um, 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 and I says, well, what do you mean? Um, he says, well, the, the, the church doesn't recognize reincarnation. So I can't say the book's okay. And I said, uh-huh. So, yeah. And then the last time I talked to him, I said, this purgatory thing. And he said, oh, no, it's a waiting room now. You go there and you, I said, sit in chairs and take a time out. You know, and he goes, well, kind of like that. And I thought, how can you make this stuff up? <laughs> Hello. <clears throat> so, anyway, I don't care what they said. Um, what I believe in is that, um, forgive my gravelly voice, I'm recovering from double pneumonia, <clears throat> which oh, scared, scared me a little bit because that's how I left the planet last time. Um, but anyway, uh, I 
I was definitely, as far as I'm concerned, in hell. Mm-hmm. I was also taught that purgatory and hell were the same place. You just get out of purgatory. So it's, you know, it's just like you've got an all day pass here and you got to, you know, it's all hard to swallow. Once you come back and you've experienced it yourself and then somebody tries to tell you it's this, that, or the other thing. But I did have what I considered hellish experiences that I took from my own life that I seemed to go down there and they were magnified. Mm. Um, it, there's no time on the other side. So when somebody says, how long were you there? There's no watches. There's no, you know, daylight or it's just an eternal now. Can you give an um, example of when you say you had hellish experiences that were magnified? Can you give me an example of any of those? Well, yeah, it's ugly. Um, I worked for a pro-life here on the earth um, and helped ladies who were pregnant. I didn't preach. We just took them to the doctor and got them bassinets and all that stuff. If they decided to keep the baby, if they wanted to adopt it. So that was important to me. So now I'm in hell and I don't know, third, fourth scenario I'm in, there's this white, boom. I was in this hot with light everywhere and a, a door on one side, a door on the other. And I was like, Oh, light. You know, I hadn't seen a lot of light. And um, all of a sudden, there's this, for want of a better word, demon coming, stomping down the hall toward me with something large in his hand because he's some sort of guard. And he says, okay, this is your new job. You're going to go in that room and you're going to take what they do. You're going to go across the hall to that room and you're going to put it down. Uh, You're going to come back and you're going to do it again. Do you understand? And there's a real, (laughs) I'm a fighter and I was always looking for an escape route. So I thought, well, I'll play along with this for a minute and see if I can find a back door somewhere. Right. So I went in this room and there's this huge like doctor's office or, or operating room with all these women laying on gurneys and their legs are spread and they've got bloody sheets between them and doctors are down between their legs. And I thought, what the heck? And, and the doctor raised his hand and turned around and glared at me and says, get over here. So I went over and he says, here, take this. Well, he, he slopped this poor little desiccated baby, what remains mm-hmm. in my arms. And I just stood there gasping and he said, take it to the other room. So I went out in the way and the demons point into the other room. So I walk in that room and it's, it's like a big Costco in there. And as far as you can see is, is piles and mounds mm-hmm. of all these dead babies. Mm. So I put the baby down what's left of him on the ground. And I went back out in the hall and I told this guy, I says, I'm not doing that. It's wrong. And I'm not doing it. And so he raised his thing and he says, you really want to get in trouble now, don't you? Cause I'd been saying no on a consistent basis. And I, I just closed my eyes. I thought, I don't care. I'm not back in that room. So boom, I found myself in another scenario with another thing I had to do Interesting. So on and on and on. So that's just an example. I think, you know, they they took something that's meaningful for you and made it ugly. Mm -hmm. So uh, you had the feeling of emotion and you are you. You felt as a person. I was me. And I just thought I was not in Kansas anymore. I didn't know where I was, but I didn't think I was dead. But I knew it was dangerous. 
And um, I had to stay alive until I could find a way out. And I knew I, I wasn't going to despair. I wasn't going to give up. When he said the word despair, I remembered that that was the one thing, you know, you're not supposed to do is give up. But I had no, no concept of God there, no concept of really my other world, uh, my other life. It was just weird. You know? Was there any, was was there any hope? No. Um, Nothing was offered except that I guess I had hope in my heart from to, as the kind to get of person out. I am. <clears throat> Pardon? Hope to get out? Oh, yeah. You don't want to stay there. Believe me. Okay. So it, 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 it kept going. And finally, at the end, I didn't know it was going to be the end, but um, it's all in great detail <laughs> in my book. Um, I did manage to get out. It was It was kind of a weird situation. And um, spoiler alert, um, I was with these other where we were going to be badly maltreated and we were waiting for this all to happen. And and uh, the, the demon in charge, then we were hovering in this terrible, drafty, cold shack. And it was and, and I said to her this thing, I said, um, you know, this seems like a particular Depressing day. And I don't know if I'm just getting tired. I, I guess I had been there about two years. And I said, I just, I'm, I'm starting to weaken here. I, and she says, well, of course, day in hell, it's Christmas on earth. Hmm. And I thought first, I thought, oh God, I'm dead. I'm in hell. And it's Christmas on earth. And just something ornery inside of me, something hopeful just started singing a Christmas carol and it was my favorite. It was away in a manger and she shrieked at me to stop. And some of the other ladies one by one started picking up the tune and it's away in a manger, no crib for his head, the little Lord. And as I got to that word, she shrieked and came right at me and I closed my eyes and boom, there's bright light everywhere. It's, I feel full of love. I, I felt like I thought I'm swimming in love. Every molecule of me is soaking up love and bliss and joy. And I just was just, there's no words to describe it. Uh, it, it was just heaven. But I, I couldn't grasp that concept. I was just in this, this wonderful state. And then I looked down and, and there's my friend who just died a month ago. Mm. And I was so happy to see him and he looked great. And I thought, how come he looks so good? I saw him and he looked terrible, but he looked younger and peppy and smiling at me. And and, uh, he was wearing a sweater I'd given him. And I, I just said, oh, my goodness, to myself, I thought he doesn't know he's dead. And then, boy, he was really laughing. And I thought, okay. If I accept that he's dead, that means I'm dead and I'm in heaven. And, oh, you don't get any happier than that with him. So he had been showing me something, something flashed kind of in my head, like, wait a minute. We've been talking about something, but I forgot it. And I saw this big book open on a table. And and I remember him saying, showing me this. And I said, oh, no, 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 that's going to be too hard. I want to stay here with you. So when that flash went back out of my head, I looked at him and he said, now, Mary Kay, you've got too much left to do. And I thought, me out. And I said, no, uh-uh. 
No. And boom, they had more power than I did. So now mm-hmm. I wake up out of a coma. I weigh 86 pounds. I can't move. I've got no muscle mass. I've got something in my throat. I'm on drips. Uh, I'm just astounded. I'm furious. I'm I'm so upset. I, I thought, what a nasty joke to tell you. You've got too much left to do, and I'm in this condition? So, of course, right. my family is doing flips, and they're so happy to see me. And thank God I couldn't talk. I was such an ingrate for for such a long time. It took me six months to get grounded enough mm. to say, okay, I'm here. I'll find I gotta, out what I got to be I here to do. Right. And then go back home. And that's what heaven is, is home. So that was 22 years ago. <laughs> and I, I kept thinking, well, any time now, <clears throat> I'm going to get it done and I'll, I'll go. But it's kind of kind of dragging on. Um, I'm not through. And so now that I, it's funny, now that I'm on all these podcasts, because I thought as a single person, I'm 75 years old, <laughs> how am I going to get out and go to all these bookshops or churches and spread mm-hmm. this message that was given to me, which is, and it took me 10 years to start to understand it because I had no one to talk to. Nobody believed me. Nobody mm-hmm. wanted to talk about hell. Thank you very much. So I finally found IONS, which is the International Association of Near-Death Studies. It is chock full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of NDEers all over the world. We've got a marvelous, um, we have conferences every year that are just like little mini heaven vacations. And uh, oh, it's just full of, we have seminars and classes and sharing groups. And I found my people. I love being around dead people. <laughs> they're That's great. Fun. They're no, they're not, they're not scared of anything. So, so I'm curious. Um, I'm curious yeah. when you guys are sharing stories with one another, are there similarities in the stories? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody has a different kind of entrance, I think. But the the total bliss thing is, it's just that's what it is. And some people get to stay longer. They get to oh stay and learn things. They ask any question they want. They get the answers. They they get to see how it all works. And and I've been told that we all start off in heaven. We're all little pieces of God. Our souls are little pieces of God. And we choose to come to earth to learn lessons and to learn things and to share things. And so we pick our lives. We pick our soulmates to come with us. And we learn all the things we come to learn, hopefully. And then when uh, our time is over, the time that we picked, uh, we go home and then we have a life review. And this is not a judgment. This is just with a couple of nice guides or angels or something. You get to see every bit of your whole life and how you impacted people, how, you know, it, it was your whole life, how it was. And they flip it around and then you get to feel what it felt like to interact with you or to be the recipient of your actions and not to make you feel bad, but just to say, well, you know, I could have done a little better there or wow, you know, I really did learn empathy. Well, I, I'm, that was good. And then you have another choice. You get to stay. Uh, there's lots to do up there. It's eternity. Um, or you can choose to come down or I'm told you can go to other dimensions. You can go to other planets. We are not, we are not alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that, 
that takes away two things, fear of death and the loss of feeling like a victim when you're living on this planet. Mm. I used to blame God for all kinds of stuff. Why did you do this to me? Why did my baby die? Why did this happen? Why was I raped? Why was it? And now I, I, I look at it from, I chose that life to learn things. So I don't right. blame anybody and I don't blame myself because this is all positive. Everything that happens, even though it's a disaster at the time, generally brings a good positive result. If you just live. So is it, is it that um, you have a sense of purpose? Oh, yeah. Now, of course. And they don't tell you what it is. You know, that, that's cheating. So uh, you have to kind of figure that out for yourself. It evolves um, if you're open, you know, if you're um, the mindset as I am open, I'm here for a reason. I want to know what that reason is. Bring bring the people in that are going to help me get mm-hmm. this accomplished and then get out of your own way. And it just flows. Yeah. And it's not to say your life is ever perfect because it's not going to be perfect, but it will all turn out well. So do you feel like um, you have found purpose in sharing your story? Is this part of what you're here for? Yeah. And people don't take it real well uh, on, uh, as a whole. Uh, I found I've ruffled a lot of feathers and I understand that because I was raised Catholic. I was into mass and, and all, I learned things in Latin and in English and, and, uh, uh, the Bible and all of that. But it, my life changed when I got back. It was very, very difficult for me to go to church because the the, the prayers didn't ring true anymore. They, uh, you know, God sits on a throne and judges everybody and sends people to hell. That's not true. God is only love, unconditional love. He loves us unconditionally. You cannot get God mad or angry, or disappointed, or anything. God just loves you. God forgives you everything. He will not condemn anybody. So this turned my whole world upside down. And what I found is that I made my own hell. I believed in it. I lived my life as if I were going to purgatory, and I wasn't disappointed. So my message to everybody out there is knock it off with the thinking you're going to hell, because you don't have to go to hell. So if you unconditionally. So if God doesn't send people to hell, then who was it that was there when you were there? Figments of my imagination and two people that I knew from earth. Really? Which was very interesting, living people. And huh. I had to I had to give them both. Well, I, I like to say I didn't know I was dead. So it was it was refreshing. I thought, oh my gosh, there's so and so. These are two members of my family. And I was really, first time, I was really hungry. I was dragging. I was tired. And I thought, oh, thank God, you know, and she's making this big feast of food. And I said, oh, can I just have a little plate and some water? And she says, no, this is for important people. Mm. And I thought, that's not like her, but I kept going. And when I came back, it's really hard to go up to somebody and say, you know, I was in hell and I saw you and I got a message. Right. (laughs) It kind of takes them back a bit. So um, the, the, the message that I gave her was pertinent to the situation she was in. Uh, she eventually divorced that person. And, oh, it was just 
oh, I don't say five years ago, she came to me at Christmas one time and handed me a glass of wine. She says, okay, I'm ready to hear this hell story again. So I told her what happened. And she says, boy, that was spot on. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, So that was good. The other person I told didn't take it well at all and hasn't spoken to me in 20 years. But that's not my fault. I, I just had to mention to her, she probably needed to look at this area of her life and um, that was that was my message. And so, yeah, it's it's been interesting. Yeah, I I can imagine it. What it would be. Um, I think it's significant that you uh, pursued your priest to find um, his input to your book, and um, and the response there was not real welcoming, right? <laughs> Well, he didn't say anything bad about the rest of the book, <laughs> which is because uh, he's he's a pretty open minded guy, but he knew he would get in trouble, you know, if if uh, because I, I didn't really believe in reincarnation because the church told me. But now I know people can come and go many, many, many times. And so just because somebody tells you something, the earth is flat. There's no such thing as gravity. And the sun rotates around the earth doesn't mean they're right. 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 So now you've mentioned reincarnation several times, and I've always thought of reincarnation as um, somebody physically dying and physically coming back in a different form. Um, You're talking about it in the spirit form, right? No, coming back in as a, as a, either a human or some other place is something else. Okay. Yeah. So, would you consider yourself reincarnated? Go ahead. Pardon me. I said God's the great recycler. (laughs) (laughs) So, would you consider yourself reincarnated then? You know, it's interesting when you start to think about it because as a child, I was, we lived in Maryland and there was a lovely forest behind us. And I, I, I was sure I was an Indian and I would creep around. I had my dad make me a tree house. I was growing things in the back. I was like seven or eight. And I was convinced I had been an American Indian. And everybody says, oh, isn't that cute? But there's there's times things pop up when I I think I've been here before or I know, why do I know something about this? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing. I'm not heavy into it, but I'm I'm open to it. Yeah, yeah. So what's the name of your book, Kathy? It's called Misfit in Hell to Heaven Expat. The Misfit in Hell is pretty obvious. The expat is an expatriate or an expat, somebody who lives in one country. They go to work in another country. And when their work's done, they go back to their original country. And so we're all starting in heaven. We come down to earth to do our work and we go home. So we're all heaven expats. Interesting. Interesting. And so how do people get a hold of the book? It's sold on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and just about any, any place you want to go. Um, it's um, I've got it in a book form and the Audible's coming out and also in um, Kindle. And I've got a website that's www.misfitinhelltoheavenexpat.com if someone wants to see more about what's available there and to get in touch with me. And when did you write the book? 
uh, it goes, it was published a year ago in June. It took me about 20 years to write. <laughs> I, when I got back, I thought part of my um, recovery would be if I could just get this health stuff out of my head on, on paper, I could put it in a drawer and it would go away, but it didn't. So I just kept adding to it. And until people started saying to me, you need to write a book, you know, not mm-hmm. too many people write about this type of thing. There's only like four to 20% of people who have NDEs have the distressing type and they don't want to talk about it for obvious right. reasons. So I, I finally kept going and going and finally at one of the conventions, the IONS conventions a year and a half ago, a, a lady was just starting a publishing company. She had a little booth and she says, I walked by and she says, you need to write a book, don't you? And I thought, ah, nailed. So she, her first client <laughs> and she got me published. Wow. And how is the book doing? You know, it's doing well, I guess. I don't really check on it too much. That's not why I'm doing this. Right. Um, you know, uh, I think I'm getting more um, my message out there more on the podcasts. I mean, people that read the book love it because there's a lot of humor in it. It's about my ancestor, great grandparents on forward and and how those those sort of things kind of carry from one generation to the next, why I got to be who I was. And, and uh, like I say, it's, it's lighthearted. The hell thing isn't because it's real, but the rest of it is, is real too, but it's just um, a memoir is what it mm-hmm. is. But a lot of good messages, all the messages I got. And the one big one um, came to me in, in little snippets when I asked God, please, Give me something easy to remember so that I can say it as a mantra every morning. So um, that is, I say, dear Jesus, but it's um, help me be, to be loving, kind, merciful, forgiving, encouraging, grateful, non-judgmental, and useful. Um, that's in the book, too. That's mm, one of the best. It's just kind of what every great teacher has ever taught us. I think God just sends people to keep repeating the message, you know, it gets lost sometimes. So there's a lot of ND ears out there right now, and they've all got the same message. And that's just wonderful. Well, I love that. I love that summary of, of what you've learned and what you want to, what you want to give to people. So thank you so much for sharing your story and for sharing about the book. And um, we'll look forward to hearing more about it. Okay. Thanks, Jill. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and on Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. Email Jill at JillRiley.org.